Welcome to the Virgin Active Minds podcast by Virgin Active, where we dive deep into conversations with the best and the brightest minds in the health and well-being world. If you've got questions about health, exercise, or any dimension of well-being, we've got the answers one expert at a time. I'm Mark Cito, your host, because I love all things well-being, from exercise, work, relationships, and going deep inside our minds. I'm here to explore it all with you. This is what they came for. In this episode, I speak to Dr. Melissa Ree. Melissa has worked in the insomnia and sleep field for 19 years. She completed her master's degree in clinical psychology and a PhD at the University of Western Australia in 2001. Following this training, Melissa worked at the University of Oxford as a postdoctoral research fellow. During this time, she worked on a treatment trial for cognitive therapy for chronic insomnia. She then returned to Perth and has continued to be active in treatment, training and research into the psychological aspects of poor sleep, in which she has published a number of papers on the subject. Melissa is Director at Sleep Matters, which is a clinic that specialises in providing evidence-based treatment for insomnia and other related disorders, both in person and via telehealth. Sit back, relax and enjoy this chat with Dr. Melissa Ree and I on all things sleep. Dr. Melissa Ree, thank you so much for joining us on the Active Minds podcast. So stoked to have you here. Uh, how are you today? Yeah, good. Thanks for having me. It's always excited to talk about sleep. Beautiful. Look, a big topic, right? And a topic that affects every single one of us on the planet. So... If there's going to be a podcast to listen to, it's absolutely this one. It is a big topic and there's quite a bit to unpack. I would really just love to jump straight in. But first, could you give us a bit of an idea on who you are, what you do and how you got to this place where you are now? So I'm UK born, but I'd I'd like to think Australian bred, really, a psychologist and and mum to three, uh, three boys. And I did my, my undergrad and postgrad study here in Perth at the, the University of Western Australia. And after studying, I was, I was really fortunate to travel to the UK um, to do a postdoc position at Oxford University. And that's where I was introduced to the world of sleep science. And I, I got to work on a clinical trial there where we were developing and testing a new treatment for insomnia. And Moving back here, um, I'd already fallen in love with sleep science and the field of sleep. So I've stayed immersed there and have been a clinician and and researcher in that space for about 20 years now. Amazing. And I am going to ask another question about your, uh, I guess, your desire and uh, what got you to really focus on sleep. But before we do that, I did want to just quickly ask you a question that we often start all of our podcasts with, and that's quite relatable to you, of course. What gets you out of bed in the morning? Well, yeah, it's certainly easier after a decent night's sleep, that's for sure. But really for me, I think like probably many listeners out there, um, family and work are probably my two two main drivers. And, and work-wise, I just find sleep a super interesting field. There's heaps happening in the sleep science space. Uh, research-wise, but it's a very rewarding 
area to work in from a clinical aspect too because we've got such effective treatments for treating some of the common sleep disorders like insomnia um, and particularly uh, the psychological treatments that don't have the side effects of medications can really get people back to good sleep in quite a short space of time. Mm. And that's interesting, right, because you are a trained clinical psychologist, but then obviously now you have found your passion in sleep. How did that come about? Was it just that moment at Oxford that really changed things? Look, certainly, certainly that that was really it. But I, I think of it a bit like, um, do you know the movie Sliding Doors? Yes. With Gwen Paltrow? Yes. So I, I had my little sliding doors moment, I, I think, where I was towards the end of my PhD and over at a conference in the US and at that stage, I didn't really know very much about sleep science and, and treatments for sleep disorders. So just happened to sign up for a, a, a workshop and um, at lunch or, or morning tea, ended up chatting with Professor Alison Harvey, who was later my boss at Oxford. And I often think, gosh, if I hadn't signed up for that one particular workshop or that one particular conference, my career probably probably would have looked very different. Wow. So quite absolutely a sliding doors moment. That's it. And tell us a bit about um, what you do in Perth. So my time's split here between uh, working in the clinic. So uh, we've set up Sleep Matters, which is a behavioural sleep medicine clinic where we treat sleep disorders with evidence-based treatments but without medication. So often patients that we see might be taking something to help them sleep and sometimes our job will be to work with the medication, but a lot of times it's helping people sleep naturally again. Um, So so that's great. We've got a team of 16 clinicians across a couple of different sites here in Perth. Uh, We see people via telehealth as well. Um, So, yeah, we're doing some good things, I think. But my other time is I I work part-time as an academic at UWA. So that's where I'm I'm really working to to teach and train, but also in the the research space, which I love. And, And most of my research is about really refining and understanding how best to treat insomnia and related disorders. Okay. And before we jump a little deeper into some of these disorders, let's just go back to the start of sleep. And what is it? Why do we do it? Why it's why is it important? So this is a really big question. We we could be here for a long time, <laughs> I think. <laughs> but you know what? Scientists are still working really hard to to really nut this question out which sounds unusual, doesn't it, given that it's something that we do for six or seven or eight hours every night and we're still not 100% sure of why exactly we do it and um, what sleep is. But what we do know is that sleep's a state of reduced consciousness, so it's characterised and really measured by changes in our brain activity and breathing and heart rate, body temperature, a few other physiological functions. Typically, there's no memory for the hours that pass during sleep. Um, However, sleep's not just a passive and dormant part of life. It's a time where actually many parts of the brain are as active as during wakefulness. We, we know that sleep's critically important to, to health and well-being. Um, it's now regarded really as one of the three pillars 
of good health alongside good nutrition and, and physical activity. And if you've slept, uh, if you live till you're, you're 85 years old, you will have slept for about 25 years. Um, so this tells us that sleep must be fundamentally important to, to spend so long in this this state. And if we also know that sleep's implicated in, in health and, and good functioning across pretty much every domain. Uh, if, if you think about um, brain health, for example, we know that sleep's really important. We know that when we go into certain types of sleep, something called the glymphatic system kicks in. And this was only discovered a few years ago, actually. A little bit like we've got the lymphatic system for the body, which clears out toxins. We have the glymphatic system in the brain that really activates when we fall asleep. And this is the time where the brain is cleaned, if you like. Toxins are cleared out, brain cells shrink a little bit, so we get more um, cerebral spinal fluid basically washing through. And we know that if that doesn't happen, our brain health deteriorates. So that's one example of, of what we do know about how sleep helps to keep us functioning you know, in, in tip-top shape. Wow, I've never heard of that actually. It was the glymphatic system, did you say? Yeah, that's it, glymphatic system. So it's like a washing of the brain, a cleaning out, a rinsing. Yeah, but it's like the gla- the brain can't operate in, in its wakeful state and clean at the same time. It can only do one of those. So sleep is when that cleaning occurs. Fascinating and obviously very important. And you did mention just then uh, at the start six, seven or eight hours. Now, I remember as a teenager, I could sleep until 2 p.m. the next day and feel, you know, it was normal, right? Is there just a set number, you know, of how many hours we should be getting? Is it different for different people? Does it change as we age? Yeah, I love this question because it's an opportunity to talk about one of those myths that often comes up about sleep. And we've all been told that we should be getting eight hours, haven't we? I think we've all read that or heard that somewhere. But what I say to my patients is let's think about sleep time as something that is actually quite individual. It varies from person to person. So perhaps it's better to think about it a bit like shoe size or or height. Mm. And you might have little feet or big feet and you're just as healthy as the person that has different size to you. And sleep's a, a bit the same. And we usually think about sleep need as being in a range. And it can be helpful to know where you fall within that range. We know, for example, that in general, most people aren't going to do very well if they're getting less than about five and a half hours sleep, excuse me, on a regular basis. If you have the odd night of short sleep, of course, that's fine. But it's that consistently sleeping for less than five and a half hours that probably leaves most of us not feeling so great and not functioning very well either and and leaves us open to some physical problems as well, just being less healthy overall. But interestingly, actually having too much sleep seems like it might be a problem as well. So for people that sleep more than about nine hours a night consistently, That seems to be associated with poorer health and well-being outcomes too. But if you think about it, that difference between five and a half, six hours and nine hours is quite a big range, isn't it? So while most people will do well on about seven hours a night, 
there is what we call a standard deviation or a range around that average. And it can be useful to, to think about, well, where do I feel I fit in that range? And generally, if you're functioning pretty well and happily and healthily, the amount of sleep that you're getting is probably about right. You know, the body is usually quite clever at regulating us without us having to think too much about it so that we get the right amount of sleep. Right. And so is that something that we, I guess, experiment with? Like, you know, how do I feel after six hours? How do I feel after seven? Or or was I correct in thinking that depending on our job or, or other circumstances, if we only get six hours every night, is our body able to adapt to that? Does it kind of understand that, okay, Mark's only getting six every night, so we'll figure this out. Is that a, is that a thing? Look, I wish it was the case. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> and there's quite a lot out there about this idea of sleep hacking and trying to train yourself to be able to, to get by with less. There's not great science behind that, uh, which leads me to believe that probably the answer is no, probably that the body's boss really. And it's more about us being able to adapt our lifestyle to fit with what we need. And that that need is probably not something that we can really modify that much. Sure. So it's about trying to get our, our, our sleep routine set up so that we can get the amount of sleep that we feel we function well on. And that might not be the same as our partner or or somebody else that we're comparing with. It's very much about knowing your own body and your own functioning. But I guess one experiment to do there would be to say spend eight hours in bed every night for a week and see how much sleep the body takes. Mm. And for some people, eight hours in bed might be about right and they might find that they're sleeping for about seven of those and we'd say, well, that looks like a pretty healthy sleep routine. Whereas another person might find with eight hours in bed that they're starting to get a bit of wakefulness creeping in. It might be taking a bit longer to fall asleep. They might be waking up a bit earlier than than when the eight-hour mark is up or they might be noticing there's some wakefulness and we call that sleep fragmentation in sleep science. And that means that you're spending quite a bit of time over the night awake in bed. And when that happens, we say that the sleep's not very efficient. It's kind of become patchy and, and not very consolidated. And that sometimes can be a clue that we're simply spending too much time in bed for what the body needs. Okay. And that kind of does bring us to that, to my next question about, you know, what's good sleep, what's bad sleep is that, you know, is all sleep created equal? Another nice question. And, um, no, there's definitely differences in, in sleep quality. And the, the first most important thing though, is to say that some sleep is always better than none. And even if it has been a patchy, poor quality sleep, it's still going to be restorative. Um, But what we think of as good sleep is is sleep that probably hasn't been too broken overnight. So if we think about a healthy night of sleep, you might know that we, we tend to sleep in cycles across the night. And these cycles tend to last for about 90 minutes. 
And in each of these cycles, we'll get a bit of light sleep, a bit of deep sleep, and a bit of REM or rapid eye movement sleep, which is when we do most of our dreaming. And if we're sleeping in complete sleep cycles, that's what we tend to call nice quality sleep. It's very normal to wake up a few times overnight, and often these awakenings will be when we're transitioning from one sleep cycle to the next. And we think that that might have actually been really important from an evolutionary point of view. If you think of us sleeping in a, in a tribe-type situation, it was adaptive to have at least one member of the tribe awake at any point across the night because then they could become like the alarm system for danger and help to keep us safe. So it may be that because humans sleep in the way that they do for these quite long stretches across the 24-hour period, that we've got this inbuilt safety mechanism, which are the wake-ups. So it's normal and healthy to wake from sleep, and, and often that can be another, another myth because I think uh, we often equate good quality sleep with kind of bombing out for seven hours and being completely unconscious for that, whereas actually we, we, we sleep in these cycles with lighter and deeper sleep and, and bits of wakefulness peppered throughout as well. That is fascinating. I've never, well, firstly, I'm, I didn't really know, I didn't really know that we were sleeping in these kind of 90, 90 minute cycles. Um, but hearing that and also the possible reason, evolutionary reason as to why that might be the case is absolutely fascinating to think. And what a, but what a great alarm system, you know, if, if we are all as a tribe kind of, you know, coming to some sort of wakefulness every 90 minutes, then surely we are going to be much more alert to any dangers. I think that's a really fascinating possibility, I guess. Yeah, and I think it's, it's great too because it helps us feel a little bit more kindly towards our wakings at night instead of waking and feeling frustrated and worried that we're not getting good quality sleep it can be right well this is my body doing the right thing and I can drift back off to sleep when I'm ready. that's true right like it's okay if we're waking up a couple of times in the night would we potentially be awake for a few minutes or is it just a short little awakening and then drifting back into sleep yeah well that can certainly vary usually the, those wakings will be pretty brief so a rule of thumb is that we need to be awake for a minute or two for that waking to be encoded into long-term memory and for us to have a recollection for that when we hop out of bed in the morning. Um, so often what we find is that a good sleeper will report that they never wake up and their experience of their sleep is that they do bomb out for seven hours a night, lucky them. But if we were to measure their sleep, in a sleep lab overnight, we'd see that they actually were waking up through, because the wakings were brief, there's no recall for them in the morning. Whereas other people will wake up for a little bit longer. It might be five minutes. They might pop up to the loo, have a sip of water, roll over or adjust the covers or something before they're able to drift back off. And that's really healthy as well. But really, I guess where the problem sets in is where those normal and healthy wakings become prolonged. So the mind starts to crank up into busy mode or there might be some aches and pains in, in the body, for example. 
that make what would have ordinarily been a short waking into something much longer. And, of course, then that can be quite problematic because it's it's chewing into into sleep time and it can be a real vicious cycle where if we are noticing that it's taking a bit longer to fall back to sleep, there can be some frustration and worry associated with that. But, of course, the more frustrated and worried we are, the harder it is to fall back to sleep. Mm, it's a little bit of a vicious cycle. I've definitely experienced that every now and then. We will jump into a little bit further on what, you know, some of the things we might be able to do to fix that. Um, but firstly, I did want to jump into the mental health side of things. What role does sleep, good sleep, bad sleep play when it comes to our mental health in general? There's been some really great research in this space and it, and it's still coming out and, and our understanding here is really still evolving. But what we know is that there are very strong bi-directional links between sleep and mental health. And if you, if you rewind 20 years ago, really poor sleep was considered just as a symptom of poor mental health. So if we were going through a period of stress or anxiety or low mood or depression, for example, often sleep takes a bit of a battering in that process. And it was always viewed that poor sleep was just a consequence of those other things. But there's now lots and lots of very solid data to support this idea that actually the poor sleep sometimes might cause some of those problems. So it's a very chicken and egg scenario where poor sleep might contribute to worse mental health, but worse mental health can also contribute to poorer sleep. But once we've got those two things occurring, they seem to feed off one another. So it's another vicious cycle, really, which can sound a bit um, a bit complicated. But the good thing about it is that we can often treat the poor sleep quite effectively and fairly quickly, and that that can cause really good improvements in whatever's happening on the mental health side. Mm. And, and I guess it works vice versa as well, right? If we start to work on our mental health and potentially we get some better sleep at the same time. Yeah, which actually I think is quite a message of hope because it means there's lots of places that we can start that will probably flow on to help the other parts of that vicious cycle, mm-hmm. which I, I think is, is great because then it gives the individual the choice about where they feel they can start and where they would like to start and feeling that almost whatever choice they make in where they start is, is probably a bona fide helpful, helpful choice rather than there only being one right order or right way to approach feeling happier again. True. And it's interesting you said, you know, that sleep is getting much more recognition alongside nutrition and exercise. But do you feel like there's still a long way for us to go in regards to the knowledge and the education about sleep and the importance that it plays both for physical and mental health? Yeah, long, long way to go, Mark. Um, It can be a little bit of a source of frustration um, and what we what we're seeing in Australia at the moment, anyway, is that sleeping tablets are still by far and away the most common treatment, for example, for 
for poor sleep. So for every 100 people that go to their GP complaining of poor sleep, 95 will walk out with a script for a sleeping tablet, even though in every guideline in Australia, the US, Canada, for example, medication isn't recommended as a first-line treatment. Of course, it has its place, but in terms of treatment over the longer term, it's cognitive behaviour therapy or or CBT, which we know is uh, most effective in the longer term. Right, okay. And are these... um... These sleep medications, are they allowing for that 90 minutes of cycles of sleep or are these sleep medications kind of just knocking us out? Most of, there's a bit of variation because there's lots of different medications for sleep out there. Um, the more traditional ones, uh, which we, we tend to think of these as the benzodiazepines, things like temazepam, do a good job, of course, of putting us to sleep, but they, they put us into this kind of medium sleep, which we call stage two sleep. And what they don't do so well is, is give us that deep sleep and the dreaming sleep. So it changes the kind of sleep that we have across the night. So it can be very, very useful in the short term. And if, if somebody is feeling a bit desperate or they're going through a period of stress or even recovering from, from jet lag, they, they can be useful in, in correcting into the right time zone. But the, the trouble really sets in where people get a bit stuck on them because they can be quite um, habit-forming. We become physically and psychologically dependent on them quite easily and can therefore uh, take them for a bit longer than, than we might have intended to. And that's really where they can lead to people feeling probably a bit less restored during the day. So they're taking the tablet to get to sleep but still not feeling brilliant during the day but it's quite a, a confronting idea to, to stop taking them right and that's where obviously a business like yours comes to play their part right like in working with non-medicated sleep therapies that's right so quite a lot of patients that we would see are either themselves sick of taking sleeping tablets and are finding that they're not really working for them anymore or they might come because the GP said, you know, I'm just not willing to prescribe them for you anymore. We need to find a, a different way for you to manage this in the longer term. You just mentioned something again about REM, the rapid eye movement sleep. That's our dreaming. That's when we dream, right? Yeah. And then you said deep sleep as well. Are they two different? parts of the cycle yes they are and they're often confused i think often we we equate rem or rapid eye movement that that sleep where we're doing our most vivid dreaming as the deep sleep but it's it's a different it's a different type of sleep right and obviously both important for different things yeah there is there is thinking that each each different stage of sleep is probably performing a different job and again there's there's lots of research on the go to to try and unpack which sleep stages are most important for which functions Um, but it's quite an interesting space for sure yeah it's just I've heard about this and I've never really known is it like a dream you know should I be remembering my dreams or not remembering my dreams and um, just trying to understand the different parts of sleep and, you know, what's the good ones. And But it sounds like that really it's whole, all of the parts of it, these cycles that we go through are, you know, they're all equally important. I did 
want to jump to, um, I guess, mental alertness and, you know, how our sleep can affect, I guess it's our cognitive function, right? Like waking up, getting ready for work, and then having a good solid seven hours of working. How does sleep play a part with making sure that we are focused and, and alert? Yeah, sleep's really influential and there's quite a bit of research um, looking at the relationship between sleep and, and cognitive functioning or cognitive performance. So we know it's important potentially for attention, for consolidating our memories, for problem solving, for creativity and for making good judgments. So with total sleep deprivation, so having no sleep at all on a night, obviously that's potentially going to impact performance the most, but even having restricted sleep, say to five hours or less um, across a few nights, we know that that also will result in things like poorer vigilance and, and slower reaction times. So while we don't have to have textbook perfect sleep to function well cognitively, what we do find is that if, if sleep's suboptimal on an ongoing basis, that certainly does add up to us being less sharp cognitively during the day. But again, interestingly, that relationship between sleep and cognitive performance isn't linear. So we know that very short sleep is not great for how, how we function the next day, but more sleep, endlessly more sleep, isn't necessarily better either. So again, it's this idea that we want to encourage people to sleep the right amount for them and, if possible, to do that consistently. So it's probably not a good idea before an exam, for example, to stay up all night cramming, but it's possibly not really going to help to get lots and lots of extra sleep either. It's, it's about getting that, that kind of Goldilocks amount that's right for the individual. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely felt that, right? Like you have a really, really long sleep and you think, oh, I'm going to feel so great. You know, I've had nine hours sleep, but then often you just feel a bit more groggy, you know, a little less sharp. Uh, and if anything, by the afternoon, I feel like I could have a nap. Like it's kind of, I, I feel more tired because I've had more sleep the previous night. Yeah, I experienced that too. And the Germans have a word for it. It's something like Ausgeschlafen, this term of, of, of being overslept and that associated grogginess. Right. Can you say that again? What was the word? It's something like Ausgeschlafen. Okay. So there's a term for... Might have to, might, <laughs> might have to Google that and check that I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> Could be something else altogether. <laughs> And following on from, I guess, cognitive performance, what about physical performance? You know, a lot of our listeners are Virgin Active members. They're sometimes getting up nice and early to get to the club at 5.30 a.m. to exercise. So what is sleep, how is sleep going to play a part in, in our physical performance? Yeah, again, really strong Strong relationships there, and geez, well done to everyone that gets up for a 5.30 class. Hats off to you. Yeah, so that consistent sleep from night to night is going to be the best kind of formula for optimising physical performance. And, you know, if we don't sleep well at all, it's not giving the body 
the best chance to function well. So things like our immune system can suffer and, you know, sleep aids in, in maintaining our heart and blood vessel health. Poor sleep can put us at increased risk for heart, things like high blood pressure and heart disease and diabetes. But it's important, again, to, to emphasise, because I know all that can sound a bit scary, that good sleep isn't perfect sleep. We will have wake-ups, we will have the odd poor night, um, or we might have acute periods where we don't sleep well. And the body tends to be quite resilient in the face of that. But it's where if those sleep problems continue kind of week after week and month after month, it's probably important to get it looked into pop to the GP and, and, and start the process, start the conversation around sleep and, and what, could, what could be done to improve it. Cool. And is it similar, physical exercise, is it similar to the me- mental health that it's a bit of a chicken and egg thing? Like do we know that exercising regularly can also help us to get a good sleep? Yeah, good point. Absolutely. And certainly when we're helping people with their sleep, exercise might be something that we would commonly prescribe. And often what happens when we when we're undergoing a period of poor sleep is but sometimes we might be tempted to back off from the exercise because we're we're not feeling up to it. Um, but the trouble is if we do reduce that daytime activity level too low, it can make it more difficult to sleep the following night. So it's a good idea to get outside and or into a club and, and do something. Yeah, so, so it's about keeping up those routines as best you can. Of course, there, there are going to be circumstances where that's not right, but as a, as a very general rule, keeping those same daytime routines, including exercise, is probably going to be a help in the longer term. Now, it might be that the workout ends up being a little shorter or maybe not quite the same intensity as when you're feeling 100%. But that idea that doing something rather than nothing is probably going to be beneficial. Let's jump into a bit more of a heavier one and something I think is right up your alley, I guess, and something you're working with is insomnia. And what what is insomnia? How does it happen? So insomnia is, is a... It's one of the sleep disorders. It's the most common sleep disorder. And it's where people complain of an experience of not getting adequate quality or quantity of sleep overnight. So they might be having trouble falling asleep at the start of the night. They might be having trouble waking up a lot overnight. And or they might be having trouble waking up too early in the morning. And that's associated with these daytime consequences of feeling tired or demotivated, perhaps not as productive, perhaps more anxious or or snappy or irritable the following day. And it's a chronic issue in that we don't diagnose insomnia disorder unless the sleep disturbance has been there for at least three months. So it's not covering the, the odd bad sleep that we all get occasionally. This is when the sleep issues become chronic over time and it's happening you know, at at least a number of nights each week. And so what tends to happen is that we might undergo a period of stress or or change that might be illness or having a baby, moving house, travelling to another time zone. There might be some work stress, for example, trouble in a relationship, lots of things that can cause sleep to wobble initially but sometimes what happens either the stress continues for a long time which means the sleep problem becomes chronic 
or we respond to the problem with sleep in a particular way that inadvertently keeps it going. So, for example, let's say I've got um, maybe I've been unwell with the flu and I haven't been sleeping very well and I think, oh, crumbs, well, I'm, I'm feeling terrible because of my poor sleep. I should probably not go to the gym in the morning so that I've got a bit of extra opportunity to catch up on on the sleep I've missed overnight. And then I might think, well, you know, maybe I'll, I'll, I won't go out in the evening because I, I want to be looking after my sleep and prioritising it. And I might start looking at the clock overnight because I'm wanting to kind of check how I'm doing and I'm calculating my number of hours sleep in the morning and Maybe I'm having an extra couple of coffees during the day. Maybe I'm putting my head down for, for 20 minutes on the couch in the evening because I'm, I'm feeling a bit sleepy. And all of these quite understandable things that I'm doing, either to try and help myself feel better or to try and improve my sleep, are actually backfiring and making it harder to get that good quality, healthy sleep the following night. Because if I have spent more time in bed and I haven't gone to the gym and perhaps I have dozed off on the couch, I'm not quite as biologically hungry for the sleep come bedtime. So it's a bit like I've, I've had, you know, a snack before my main meal. I can't eat as much at the main meal. So the sleep overnight then becomes a bit more broken, a bit shorter, a bit poorer in quality. So then I do even more of those behaviours to try and fix it but actually end up digging myself further into the hole. And while I'm noticing all this going on, I'm thinking, geez, my sleep's really out of control. I'm trying really hard to fix it, but it's getting worse. So maybe I, I, you know, I buy a Fitbit and I measure my sleep there and I'm tracking it each day and I'm keeping a diary of what I'm eating and if that's having an impact. And then I've become quite actually preoccupied by sleep, almost a bit obsessive in my quest to improve it, but that's fueling this anxiety about sleep such that, that, that the more effort I'm putting in and the harder I'm trying, the worse it gets. And that's what we would call a, a fairly typical presentation of insomnia. So it ends up being a sleep issue that self-sustains. And so even when my flu that had triggered it off has long resolved, I'm still sleeping poorly because the insomnia has now got a life of its own. Right. What do we do if we're there? So thankfully, lots of things that might help. And if anybody's really struggling with this, always the best port of call is, is to let your GP know. It might be that a short course of sleeping tablets is appropriate, and that's certainly a discussion that everybody can have with their GP. But in terms of longer-term management, that's where we really look to to CBT or cognitive behaviour therapy for insomnia. And there are some quite good um, online programs where this can be be accessed nowadays. There are also, um, certainly in, in Australia, but in the US and Canada and the UK as well, psychologists that specialize in the delivery of of CBT for insomnia, which is quite a structured approach really to going through working out what are those different factors that are keeping the problem going. So it's really looking at working out what's the optimal sleep routine for this person in terms of time 
to turn the light out at night and then get up in the morning, what's happening in the few hours before bed in terms of things like winding down into sleep. What are the daytime activities looking like? Is there engagement in life? Because I think as we can all identify with, we go through a period of poor sleep, it's very tempting to withdraw from life. We're not socialising as much. We're not exercising as much. Our approach to work might change. We're focusing on just a a bit of a holding pattern, and that can be a bit of a, a passion zapper. So motivation can sink. So it's helping people to really re-engage with life. Relaxation, stress management, yoga, as you would know a lot about, Mark, uh, can all be very useful things in the context of helping somebody to improve their sleep. But when insomnia really takes hold, one of the really important things we, we need to work towards doing is helping people to really put regulation of sleep in the back seat. So trusting that the body will let you sleep, you just have to set up the right conditions for it. And we don't really need to do lots of monitoring of sleep and becoming overly preoccupied and perfectionistic about it. It's about getting those broad brushstrokes in place, living your life and trusting that good sleep will nearly always follow if you can do that. So it's kind of getting rid of that sleep anxiety. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to look at it. You know, it's kind of that preoccupation with it. In in a yogic sense, we would look at that as, you know, if you put all of your focus and attention on something, then it grows, right? So if you're kind of putting all of your focus and attention on all of the, I guess, the negative aspects of what you might be experiencing with insomnia, then potentially it kind of, like you said, creates a mind in itself you know it becomes its own thing so it's yeah it's kind of an interesting way to look at it as you know just allow that stuff to be uh you know put it to the back for a bit you know set up the opportunity for good sleep and just have some trust and faith that your body will you know give you a good night's sleep but equally also good to know that there are a lot of other things that we could be working on and people that we can work with if we're at that point where it's just, you know, we, we, we desperately need some help. That's right. So there's lot, lots of good options. And with, with CBT for insomnia anyway, we know that uh, about 80% of people will, will get a really good response from it. So it's, it's something that's, that's quite powerfully effective for most people. And is that something you would get from someone like you, like as a clinical psychologist? Is that who practices CBT? Yeah, well, yeah, certainly. They're probably the biggest group, but certainly not the only only group of, of health professionals. Um, but with treatments for insomnia, it's very handy if the health professional has had some experience and training in sleep and in sleep science. So they've got a really good sense of what a healthy night of sleep looks like and how sleep is regulated from a biological point of view. And then they'll be able to make really good decisions about how best to kind of pull the right levers, so to speak, to really encourage that sleep to improve across a short period of time. So asking that question about have you had some experience and training in sleep would possibly be a good question to ask in terms of considering seeing any health professional regarding a sleep issue. 
I spent a bit of time studying in Spain uh, back in 2005, long time ago. I spent a good half year there studying and quickly adapted uh, the siesta, <laughs> the nap in the afternoon. I mean, it was a pretty luxurious lifestyle studying until one o'clock and then going to bed for an hour or two and then going to the beach in the afternoon. What a life. I would love to go back to that life. Um, but what, what's your thoughts on napping? And why don't why do some cultures like the Spanish and the Italians and Mexicans? Why do they do it? Why don't we do it? You know, what are the benefits? Yeah, look, I mean, so I wonder how many million people there are in the world that have a siesta as part of their life. There's, I mean, there's got to be something in it, hasn't there? And I, it sounds like a pretty smart way to go. So there's a, there's a few reasons here, and if we think about our circadian rhythm or our, our body clock, which is a cycle that operates across the 24 hours, we're biologically predisposed to feel sleepy in the early afternoon. And a lot of people refer to this as the post-lunch dip. And it can be accentuated if we have a heavy meal. And we're quite predisposed to a little post-lunch snooze. And that, that's the same whether we're in Australia or, or Spain, there's that biological predisposition. But some cultures have chosen to take the opportunity for that that increased sleep propensity to build that into into the culture, really, and to build that into into daily routines. So there's a good biological prompt or, or reason for doing that. What tends to happen in those cultures, though, is that everything gets shifted a bit later, doesn't it? You might have noticed that breakfast time was a bit later, dinner time was later. And bedtime was later. So what we might find in these cultures is that the overnight sleep might be just a little shorter because of that siesta during the day. And I don't think there's anything wrong with doing that. It's just different. And I think if we were to do that in Australia, we would very much feel like we were swimming against the tide, wouldn't we? <laughs> yes, definitely. I don't think it would be, I mean, a completely different culture, right? But um, I think we would all like the idea of a nap. You know, people tend to, yeah. you know, get excited about about the idea of a nap. And I, I um, you know, I love the idea of, having a little nap in the afternoon, especially as you explained after that lunchtime moment. We're obviously right now in the middle of a pandemic, so working from home. So it's very easy to have that little nap in the afternoon. I do tend to find that after a nap, it kind of goes two ways. Like if I have maybe 30 minutes and I really like, if I set my alarm for a strict 30 minutes, of course, I went to sleep, but I don't feel like, you know, I wake up still fairly fresh and alert. But then there's times when I've napped for maybe two hours and wake up at five o'clock and I'm like, I can't, I can't work now. Like, I feel like I could just sleep the whole night, you know, like, is there a, is there a, a difference in the length of it? And how does that play again on cognition? Yeah, definitely. So, Years ago in, in the field of, of sleep medicine, napping was a real taboo. And, you know, as a clinician, we, we were kind of taught to work very hard to help people to avoid naps because it was going to ruin sleep. But there's <clears throat> such good evidence now for from this kind of concept of power napping that we've had to kind of 
go back a little bit on, on what we were initially thinking. So a nap of less than 30 minutes seems to be really a great thing as long as it's about seven hours before the main sleep period. So if I, say, normally turn the lights out at 10 p.m., if I was going to nap, I want it to be short and sharp. So, you know, probably 15 to 20 minutes is ideal. And I want it to be before three o'clock in the afternoon. And that means I get that, as you described, from a short, shorter sleep, you get this really nice kind of build up of, of energy, of attention, without the grogginess that we get from a longer nap. And you know, for most of us, it takes about half an hour to fall into a deep sleep. So that's partly why that recommendation is to make the nap short, because you don't want to go into deep sleep, really, if, if you're napping during the day. If we wake up from a deep sleep, it's more likely you're going to feel groggy and kind of almost jet lagged or a bit unwell. It's quite um, hard, difficult to come to, isn't it? So if we get into that, that deeper sleep in that longer nap, then that could also have an effect then on our sleep in the evening. Yeah, exactly. So the, the, the more sleep we have and the deeper sleep we have, the more likely it will take away from the sleep that we get overnight, which may not be a problem. We've just got to expect that that might be the case. So if we slept for two hours in the day, we can't expect that we're then going to sleep for our typical amount overnight. And if you can work that into your routine, that that's probably fine. But what we tend to see is that if, if someone slept during the day, they might still go for the same amount of t- sleep time overnight and then find that they're tossing and turning and awake and feeling frustrated in bed, which um, typically uh, leads to sleep then becoming worse because we've got into that frustrated, anxious kind of cycle that ends up keeping us awake. Which did just bring a question to my mind about catching up on sleep. Can you catch up by having, you know, you had a poor night tonight, so the night after just sleep double? Is that is that a thing? Look, kind of. And there is a bit of debate in the literature about catch-up sleep. And as a general rule, it's not it's not a great idea. It's not it's not never going to be a way to optimize sleep health to think, well, if I sleep two hours one night, I'll just get five hours extra the following night and be fine. It doesn't tend to work that way. But there is also some thinking that we might only need to catch up on a third of the sleep that we miss. So just to make the maths easy, let's say I sleep for six hours a night on average. Then I have a night of zero sleep. The following night, I would need eight hours to catch up. So I'd need a third of the sleep that I'd missed on the night I'd had zero. So I might sleep then for eight hours, which is two hours longer than normal. Um, And then I would basically be caught up. However, if you were to do that, you can imagine if you were to do that on an ongoing basis, A, it's probably just not going to be possible because the body biologically is going to resist that kind of a sleep pattern. And you can imagine it's not going to lead to a great sense of of health and well-being. But it it can be something that's useful to hold in mind for those rare occasions where maybe we do get a dreadfully curtailed night of sleep. 
to not go into panic mode about that, but just to set up the conditions the following night to allow a couple of extra hours sleep. And if we were to do that for a night or two, it's not going to do anything long term to our health. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's a, yeah, that's a, that's a nice little take home. I think don't stress about it, you know, set up a good night the pre the following night, maybe an extra third and um, potentially that will help to counterbalance that poorer evening. Yeah. So it's like, it's like the emergency measure, I guess. So what we're aiming for is more consistent sleep from night to night as a general rule. But as we all know, life gets in the way of that sometimes, doesn't it? And, and, and we need to be able to, to be a little bit agile and, and pivot around what life throws up at us uh, and sometimes gets in the way of that sleep being as consistent as we'd like. And um, what about food? Do we get hungry when we are lacking in sleep or tired? Yeah, there is some evidence to support this. Um and this seems to be the case that the more deprived of sleep we are, that the, the bigger the impact might be. Um, and it seems to, to impact some people more than others. But lack of sleep certainly can, can increase levels of ghrelin and lower levels, uh, levels of leptin, which can increase hunger and appetite the following day. Um, but also when we're tired, we tend to reach a bit more for the high fat and high sugar foods in an attempt to boost our energy and, and to improve our mood. So certainly can be the case that we're, if it's after one night of poor sleep or we're in a bit more of a chronic state of, of poor sleep, yeah, it's quite common to see that appetite shifts can happen and, and food choice shifts can happen too. And I guess it's potentially another bit of that chicken and egg thing. Can the food that we eat then affect our sleep? Yes, it can. Yes. So obviously there's lots of different things that we put in our body can impact sleep, whether it's from medications or obviously caffeine is a big one, nicotine, alcohol, um, really powerful uh, impacts on sleep there. Food-wise, this is quite variable, I find, from individual to individual. There's a lot of myths and there's a lot of information on the internet that I think overstates these relationships. So this is an area which I think is a bit new. And when, when research areas are a bit new, you know, we've got to start somewhere. But there, there's been some studies suggesting all sorts of things like, you know, if you eat two kiwi fruit, you're going to sleep well. Right. It wasn't a great study in my opinion. So we've got to be a little bit careful about the information that we take from this. So I would suggest to people, know yourself. And if you find that having a big spicy meal at the end of the day doesn't agree with your sleep wires, well, you know, take that on board, but that might not be the case for everybody. Same with things like, you know, valerian or, or tart cherry or a glass of warm milk that has tryptophan. For some people, this might help sleep, but where the science is up to is saying that the effect sizes here seem pretty small and very variable from individual to individual. So it's probably just that we've got a, a long way to go yet before any food sleep relationships have really been unpacked and, and verified properly. But it's not to say that they don't exist, especially for certain individuals, but 
I think my take home from all of this is, again, to say, let's not get too obsessed and that there's probably no need to eat a specific diet for sleep other than just eating healthy food as you would to sustain overall a healthy body and a healthy mind. So we we know there was a recent study that suggested that women who increased their serves of fruit and veg during the day, who and these are women that were already poor sleepers, did end up improving their sleep just by making that one change. That's interesting. But it's more about, well, let's just have a focus on, on healthy eating rather than there being a very um, obsessive, specific diet that's going to optimise sleep. Yeah, okay. And look, and I think that's a lovely takeaway, right? Like all of these parts of our well-being play a part and it's kind of having that overall view and, and attention to all of it. You know, if we're eating well and moving a bit each day and we're feeling secure and uh, focused with our work and our family and, and potentially that, in you know, that helps with our sleep and vice versa and all of the chicken and egg scenarios that we've kind of talked about. So kiwi fruit, potentially good for the sales of kiwi fruit, but maybe not uh, as a as a sleep hack every night to kiwi fruit. <laughs> and not that I'm against people eating kiwi fruit. <laughs> but I guess just to be aware too that, I mean, sleep has become a multi-billion dollar industry and there are a lot of lotions and potions and powders and gadgets out there that bring with them on the label the promise of good sleep in my view that there are very few people that need to to be going down any of those expensive paths and it's about understanding how sleep works and then being in a good decision a good position sorry to make decisions about how best to navigate I think you summed it up beautifully in what you just said And dreams. I never remember my dreams. It's so rare for me to remember a dream. And obviously we've touched already on REM being the the moment in our sleep cycle where we do dream. What's your thoughts on the importance of dreams and or do they have an importance or is it purely a biological thing? Is there something greater to dreams? What's your thoughts? Well, dreams are probably important. And we can dream in other stages of sleep than REM, but it's just that in REM, that's where we get these uh, vivid dreams that have often got quite a clear storyline to them. But we think that we probably only really remember our dreams when we wake up from them. So a lot of people will have have your experience, Mark, of, of not dreaming. It doesn't mean that it's not happening. It just means that you're not recalling it. Whereas because REM often will occur at the end of the sleep cycle and we might wake up at the end of the sleep cycle, and for a lot of people that might mean that they will remember what they were dreaming about. But again, if if you fall to sleep quickly, you lose the recollection for that in the morning. We know that if we're sleep deprived, when we have our catch-up sleep, the brain will put us into kind of a more intense REM state which means that our dreams can become more vivid and more intense and we might be more likely to have nightmares so there is a link between nightmares and dreams but i i think it's less about 
the brain trying to to resolve anything and it's just a consequence of of the brain wanting to catch up on sleep that it it does it more intensely if if that's a way to describe it but we also know there's a link between stress and dreams and again when we're stressed we're more likely to have stressful or nightmare type dreams the relationships there probably aren't really that well understood, but it's something that, that scientists are, are really working on at the moment is, well, what exactly is the function of dreams or are they just an artefact of what needs to happen biologically in the brain in order for sleep to be restorative? Or do they serve a function at a more psychological level? So a few question marks there. Yeah, there are a few question marks there. Um, I think that, you know, of course, there's a lot of us that would love to think that there's a greater meaning to these things and that we're working things out subconsciously. And um, But yeah, like you said, equally, it could just be a byproduct of some biological function that just needs to happen. And dreams are just part of that. But interestingly, too, people are often um, quite curious to know about lucid dreaming, which is where we have control over the dreams as they're happening and it seems that some people seem to be able to train themselves to lucid dream and this can work particularly well if we if we have uh, recurrent dreams so if if let's say you have a have a dream where it could be anything you're walking down a particular street and you kind of train yourself to to imagine what you see in that dream scenario of walking down the street and it might be right the next time I experience this I'm going to be wearing red shoes and with time people are able to to start to influence what's actually happening in their dreams and this can be quite an effective treatment for people that suffer with nightmares actually it's called imagery recruiting therapy so that tells us that there's certainly a link between what we're thinking during the day and what's happening in our dreams overnight. So we do know that there are at least some kinds of links there, but they're just not really that well understood yet. Wow. I mean, I think there's a whole other podcast episode with lucid dreaming. (laughs) That sounds like a big topic. We've touched on it a little bit already in regards to wearables. You know, you mentioned the Fitbit and then tracking sleep. What's your thoughts on, you know, sleep trackers and these sleep apps that we leave running next to our bed every night? And I am currently using a sleep tracker. Um, It's only been probably the last month or so. And I do find it a bit fascinating. Like it is Honestly, it's the first thing I check when I wake up is what has happened over the night. And there's part of it that's just interest. It's like, oh, did I get a good sleep? Did I not? I can now understand why I see the little peaks and troughs in the graph. And then it wraps up. It tells me whether I've had a good sleep or not based on the amount of hours. I mean, how it knows the amount of hours that I need, I don't know, because I didn't really put much information into this app. And then it's just starting to track me. And then the other interesting thing I found by using it is it records me sleep talking and snoring. And I guess there are two other things that I wasn't really, well, of course, I knew that I snore every now and then, but now getting an actual recording of it every night, And the weird things I'm saying at night in some of my, I imagine, dreams. It's been an interesting month, really. 
using this sleep tracker. So what's, I don't, I don't really know yet what I'm going to take away from it. Like, will I continue with it? Is it helping me to sleep better? I'm not really sure. What's your thoughts? I'm going to cop out a little bit here, Mark, and say it's going to be really individual. And if you're finding it useful, keep going. You know, we don't want to fix what's not broken. And if someone's finding it that it's giving useful information about their sleep and, and it's and it's a benefit, well, I'd say keep doing it. But what we don't want is the device to be ruling your life. And one thing that we see in the clinic reasonably often is somebody doing just what you've said, Mark, which is, well, I check my phone or my app or my watch First thing when I wake up in the morning to see my sleep score or, or how, how I did overnight. But then some of the people will be noticing that that score that the app gives them will then start to determine decisions about what they, how they approach their day. Although maybe I won't do such an intense session at the gym today because my sleep score was bad. Or maybe I'm going to cancel that meeting or... I'm not going to catch up with my mate after work because I don't, I don't think I can cope with that. And I feel like that's a shame because then a bit like the apps, a bit too much in the driver's seat. A hundred percent. You know what? Like I've, it, I've noticed that myself, right? If I've, it's, it's given me a score. It hasn't been a great sleep. It does play a part on how I look at the rest of my day. So even stepping out of bed, I've had these tendencies when I've gotten a bad score to think, oh, I'm going to be shitty today. I'm going to be a bit tired. Waking up with that, I guess, mindset could potentially play a really big part on the decisions I make for the rest of that day. Uh, so, yeah, I can, I can definitely see that. Yeah, and I think too, it's really easy then to kind of scapegoat sleep for anything that goes wrong in the day. And I, I've, I've, I've certainly fallen into this trap as well, where, you know, let's say you forget somebody's name or you can't remember where the car keys are or you just can't figure out the solution to a problem at work. And it's very easy to say, oh, well, that's because I didn't sleep well. And at the end of the day, we're probably not going to, know whether that's true or not but what it does is it, it it allows this dangerous cycle to kind of start to kick off where if I'm attributing everything that goes wrong during the day to the fact that I didn't sleep well my worry about my sleep is going to start to increase and then thoughts like well I really better make sure I get a good night tonight might start to creep in and well, some of that might be healthy because it means we're prioritising our sleep and we're hopefully going to set up good conditions for sleep that night, on the surface anyway. But what can be happening internally is, is this pressure and this anxiety about sleeping well, which tends to make us more anxious and stressed and actually less relaxed when we turn out the light. It's like there's this performance anxiety that can creep in about getting to sleep and the less we want to be awake, the more we're awake. You know, what, what we resist persists type scenario comes on board. So apps, yeah, they trackers, I think they have their place. Um, but we, we want to just be mindful of where it creeps over into fueling anxiety about sleep and where it might fuel 
too many of our decisions during the day about how we approach the day. And recently a term has been coined, if you, if you Google orthosomnia, it's a term to being overly preoccupied about sleep. And th there is a danger that it's doing too much obsessing over numbers and, and sleep scores and things might feed a bit into that. But, of course, there's lots and lots of people out there using them in a really helpful way. So I wouldn't want to tar everybody with that brush. Pretty individual, which it sounds like a lot of these things are pretty individual and it's getting to know what works for you that's really going to help you to move forward with good sleep. We're nearly at the end, but I did want to ask about the other device sitting next to us at night, um, the alarm. <laughs> and how, you know, is having an alarm a good thing? Should we be training ourselves not to have an alarm? I mean, I have to have an alarm. I just, I could not, um, the anxiety I would have about missing something by not having an alarm, even on a weekend, it's just, it's too much for me. Um, but what, what, do you, what, do you, what do you think? There is a suggestion that waking up naturally is probably the absolute gold standard, if you like, for sleep, because then we know for sure that we're waking up when the body has had enough. It's not hungry for sleep anymore and it's saying, right, okay, it's time to start. But for, I think, the majority of us, life is such that we need to be up at a certain time in the morning to get where we need to get to and to get done what we need to get done. So alarms become sometimes a bit dreaded, but a, but a necessary evil. And I guess what we're wanting to do is just make sure that given whatever time the alarm's going off, that we're giving ourselves enough sleep opportunity in the hours preceding that to get in enough of that healthy sleep. Sometimes when there's a mismatch between the timing of our body clock and the time we need to get up in the morning, that can create quite big problems. So, Mark, you mentioned before that when you were younger, you could sleep in until the early afternoon very easily. And that's quite common, actually. When we enter adolescence and probably until at least our mid-20s, we have a bit of a delay in our circadian rhythm which means we, we become night owls for that period of our, of our lives. So we can stay up later, but then we can sleep in much later during the day as well. And then as we progress into our 30s and beyond, that our body clock or circadian rhythm tends to advance. So it gets earlier and earlier, just a little bit each year. But typically what we'll find is elderly people will be more likely to be early birds so they can fall asleep a lot earlier, but then they have no trouble waking at five in the morning to start the day. So you can imagine that somebody that might be younger might be more reliant on an alarm than somebody that might be in their 60s, 70s or 80s. And that's just because of quite a normal biological shift that occurs in sleep throughout the lifespan. So it is going to be another one of my answers where I say, well, it depends a bit and it's going to vary. I wonder maybe if there's an evolutionary purpose for that shift as well, potentially. Yeah, and I think people have thought a little bit about that. And, and again, maybe it feeds into this notion of, well, we've got different levels of wakefulness across the tribe, across different parts of the night. Mm. 
What about snoozing? I am very impartial to a snooze. <laughs> what are you, what are, is it good? Is it not good? Tell me it's good, please. <laughs> well, I, I love a snooze too, so I'm feeling a bit torn here. <laughs> it's too tempting, especially in the winter. But basically snoozing, although, you know, hitting the snooze button when you're feeling a bit groggy from the alarm is a hell of a lot easier than getting straight up out of bed, isn't it? And there's a sense that, you know, maybe I'm kind of easing the transition on myself from sleep to wakefulness. And there is a thing called sleep inertia, which is a transitional state between when we're asleep and then when we're awake, in that we we literally often do feel half asleep when we're making that transition in the morning. And for a lot of us, that can take 30 to 60 minutes to get over that sleep inertia. So I suppose a positive part of snoozing is we could say, well, maybe we're kind of working through some of that period of sleep inertia with that snoozing. However, I think the other side of the coin there is to say, well, what we're probably ending up with is 10, 20, half an hour, 40 minutes maybe of just poor quality sleep that's being broken every 10 to 15 minutes by an alarm. And would we actually feel better during the day if we said, well, I'm just going to set my alarm for the absolute latest time that I can wake up and give us the opportunity for good sleep quality up until that point, knowing that then we've absolutely got to get out of bed, otherwise we're going to be late. And that probably means that you are going to suffer through 30 to 60 minutes of feeling groggy and full of that sleep inertia, but maybe it means we've had better quality sleep overall overnight. Yeah, I thought that might be the answer because I'm definitely one that will set the alarm just a little earlier so I can snooze. It's almost like I enjoy that moment of like, oh, just an extra 10 minutes. Yes, I'll take it. Second last question. A uh, question that we like to ask all of our guests. Um, what do you want more than anything else in this life? You know what? The first thing that came to mind was an extra day in the week. And I think that's unlikely. But I think I want that extra day in the week for the second thing that comes into mind, which is great relationships. And that would be that would be my, my shorthand. I love my work. I'm passionate about my work. And uh, you know, I'm sure that's going to continue. But in terms of ev- everything else that surrounds that, it's people and, and having great relationships with them. Oh, beautiful. What a great way to finish an awesome episode of Active Minds. Um, it's been so great chatting to you. Melissa, where can people find you? People are very welcome to get in touch. So um, they can Google Sleep Matters. Uh, sleepmatterspurth.com.au we're on Facebook as well uh, the Sleep Matters Clinic Um, and yeah we're very happy to to seek to hear it from people to if people have just got questions inquiries do our best to help awesome and do you do do we've got obviously uh, listeners everywhere do you do online um, sessions with people as well yeah, we do. And obviously, over the last couple of years with COVID, telehealth has become a much more common mode of, of treatment. So uh, we do lots of telehealth consultations over video conference each week. And um, 
we find that, well, for, for most presenting concerns, but for sleep, it works really well. And there was a nice paper that came out, I think, as a result of the changes due to COVID last year that suggested that CBTI or insomnia delivered via telehealth was just as effective as face-to-face. So certainly a great treatment option, either because of the pandemic or because people can't get in to see us in person and that might be because of geographical restrictions or or just life making it difficult to make in-person consults possible awesome great well again dr melissa ree thank you so much for spending this time with us it's been a wonderful chat oh it's great great fun mark i hope it was useful it was certainly a pleasure for me awesome thank you so much melissa and um hopefully we get to chat to you again soon sounds great Thanks for pressing play today. I hope you've enjoyed this chat with Melissa and I, discovering just how important our sleep is. I hope, like me, this chat encourages you to give your sleep the extra attention it deserves. If you're loving this podcast, then please hit subscribe and tell all your friends and family about the Active Minds podcast by Virgin Active. Until next time, I hope you have a good night's sleep.